welcome to In The Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. I'm Adam Pierno, Generation X. And I'm Farah Bostic, uh, a Carter baby, apparently. <laughs> I just found that out. <laughs> is that like instant Google result that is popping up as it we're is, talking? It is. It's right up at the top. You've got a you've got a short list of uh, other names for the micro generation born between seventy five and eighty. I think it's funny that people are still trying to make that a thing that it's a micro generation. That's part of the story that we are telling in this podcast. The big lumps of people that you're supposedly are part of and are emblematic of who you are, and yet you look at the lists of characteristics and go, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. That's that's not my experience at all, or that's not, doesn't describe me in the slightest. And that all seems super problematic when we try to like segment audiences or parts of the public for the purposes of understanding politics or anything else. And like, let's just group them into these birth years and say that they are a thing. Seems to me they're probably not. Not quite as homogeneous as we wished at some point. No, no, not even so a little. So when you and I, over the summer, decided, hey, we're going to make a podcast, we have a lot of questions that we both find interesting. We settled mm-hmm. on this idea of looking at groups and looking at just exactly that thing, like getting into the what's inside uh, homogeneity, what's inside the research that defines it. And the first story that we thought was the most compelling and that we both really latched onto pretty quickly was the millennial myth. And Mm -hmm. I I was interested in the current headlines of it, you know, how wild it is that millennials are accused of killing everything uh, in culture and the economy and the world. And we'd look at that in a future episode but as we started pulling at it, uh, some of the things you remembered, some of the things you knew about the very early formation of the myth, I opened the door for me to say, I think we could do a whole season focused on getting really going and examining and trying to figure out where did all this start before it got to where we are today and then filling in that space in the middle. Yeah, because I think my my fixation has been it's this kind of... Um short-term memory situation with the way uh, the kind of popular narrative about millennials has evolved, where at any given moment in time, the snapshot that's being presented is presented as if it was both ever thus and shall ever be so, right? That millennials are like this full stop and not millennials are reacting to social, economic, political forces this way at this moment which would be itself an improvement, though still not probably sufficient to describe tens of millions of people 
But instead you blink and you forget what you were saying yesterday about millennials. And today you're saying something else and you blink again and tomorrow you say something else. And because I've just sort of happened to be fed millennial trend reports since they were more or less invented, it sticks in my head of like, wait, you know, last time I thought about this, you were telling me something else. And so, you know, my, my tendency is always to go, wait, where did this begin? What's the origin of this sort of thing. And I can't help myself. I just immediately have to like go look it up. But it also then revealed that it turned out I'd, I'd already read the first book. Yeah, we, we we did a lot of research to figure out that you already had it in a storage unit that already you had already read. Yeah. Very funny. Hilarious. Yes. Yeah. And so it just seemed like, you know, if we're going to understand how this kind of public narrative has been crafted and shaped and evolved over time, we have to sort of start at the beginning and keep looking at what's going on now and start to kind of pick apart, well, who are the people within this generational cohort and how much do they really have in common? And, yeah. you know, what what's driving their responses to things? And I think the the thing that we I think have come up with over all the research we've been doing and the look look backs and, and looking at now is that there are elements of truth in these stories um, and then a whole lot of license being taken to explain those elements of truth. There are and then a lot of the things that are being. No, go finish. Go ahead. I was going to say a lot of the things that are being explained by, well, it's because they're millennials um, is, is confusing, <laughs> you yes. know, which, which end of the, which end of the stick we should be looking at here. It's, it's the economy or it's policy or it's technology or it's culture or whatever. And, um, and the millennials aren't making it be that way. They're reacting to it being that way based on where they are in their lives yeah, and, um, it seems and the that other experiences they have that, that idea of it's because they're millennials is a very amorphous and flexible and malleable punchline that for the time that they were the the future of America and the optimistic saviors demographically of, of America and the world, they're millennials. They're going to fix it. They're great. Here's all the things that are great about them. And then it became, well, we're in this great recession here and oh shit. Well, they're millennials. Yeah. And now it's they're killing toilet paper and they're killing the economy. They're killing home buying. They're killing every single part of culture and and uh, the economy. They're millennials. Yeah. And as we, as that story shifts, what we've been able to do in the in the research that we've done is, I'm a little cautious of our own work, that I don't want to be guilty of what I think has happened to millennials. <laughs> which is one or two data points that make a narrative that works as a point in time. I'm trying to be cautious in our examination that we don't say, aha, here's the golden key. You know, here, here's the answer. And, and what's been fun about recording the episodes and the, the conversations we already have is both of our skepticism of jumping to that conclusion and get, you know, mm -hmm. saying, here's the answer. Here's, you know, we found the first book and this is where everything went wrong. And it's a hundred percent. Our point of view is correct. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's so so much more complicated than that. It's always like, well, maybe it's this and maybe it's also these five other things <laughs> and maybe it's all six things happening simultaneously. And that's why I, I think the other thing that's interesting in, in our looking at this is discovering that this is a pattern that repeats and yes. that, you know, some of the things that were used to characterize and 
define early on what millennials were, were the exact same things that were being used um, kind of later in their evolution. You know, we, we started talking about millennials um I mean, in the public discourse in particular, like we really start talking about millennials as they're about to graduate, as the or as the first ones are about to graduate from high school in 2000. And, um, you know, there had been people who cared for 10 years before that, but that's really when it starts to pick up the pace is like 98, 99, 2000. And for Gen Xers, they got characterized much later. <laughs> like they, they got defined and, and labeled well into their 20s. But some of the same characteristics that they were using to describe Gen Xers are being used to describe millennials, are now being used to describe Gen Z. And, you know, to some degree, there's some similar characteristics talk, uh, you know, that were used to describe boomers for that matter. And what I think the other thing we were reacting to is millennials are still kind of the media shorthand for youth even though many of them are into their 40s now, or as, as I refer to them, the newly old. Um, so, like, <laughs> well, welcome. It's just as fine here as it was over there. Like, yeah. I don't know that much, but much changes really. Just a little bit more um, lower back. Ex- exactly. Um, more things exhaust you emotionally and intellectually. <laughs> that seems weird to keep sort of when you're talking about, I mean, even over the last couple of weeks, right? The youth vote is including millennials, even though many of them are 43 years old. And it's like, what are we talking about here? This may be the tipping point moment where we're going to stop talking about millennials as youth and start talking about Gen Z as youth, because I already see people flogging a Gen Z saved us narrative on the Twitters about the election. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's like, oh, I can't wait for the actual tabulations to come back and to find out that they did fine, but they did not outperform anybody's expectations. Yes, it's the it's the cycle that just keeps repeating. And each time and and this comes up in a lot of our conversations in the other episodes, there's this when they're young and not yet out of college, they are the future, they are the saviors, they will be heroes and then they graduate from college and they are pains in the ass and they seem to want a lot of stuff and like they ask a lot of questions or whatever like whatever it is that they suddenly (laughs) reveal themselves as not easy children they're sort of difficult young adults and then they become disappointments later on and that that's the kind of early narrative arc from like you know 12 to 45 that's the story of the youth and once they hit 45 well we probably just start stop talking about them all together. That's usually the way it goes. And then they reemerge when they're nearing retirement yes. um, because they matter right. again. And it's, um, so that's that's also part of what we wanted to dig into. Yeah, and it's been an interesting series of conversations that we've been able to have and series of, of research projects that we've been able to dig up because when we when I was in it, you know, as the narrative was being shaped and as they were a core customer that I had to figure out in in earlier parts of my career you're in the ocean you can't see the edges of it but now we have the benefit of time yeah we can look back we we found what we consider the source text we found people that were there at the very beginning of the storytelling and we have found um people that were asking the questions but maybe not loudly enough or maybe didn't have the right platform for anybody to to pick up what they were saying or add it to the story and so yeah. the perspective that we have just through the benefit of time is allowing us, A, to really examine the formation of the myth, 
how it got, I guess, transcreation is the buzzword that goes along with the rise of the millennial generation from that, that time period. <laughs> um, and then how it got deconstructed and now how it's being copy pasted, replicated with Gen Z and even Gen A, you can already see they're the saviors before Gen Z is even phased yep. into cranky middle-aged people with mortgages and jobs. Um, yeah. I mean, they're still like 10 years yeah, off from that. But we know, but we can predict, <laughs> we could probably write the date in an envelope when those stories will start and be correct oh, about it. Put a little time <laughs> capsule for Gen Z together. Because we've both been in this, you know, brand marketing, advertising strategy world, our clients are always, you know, not, not all of them, but many of them believe that, you know, ha have beliefs about the importance of youth audiences, let's put it that way, right? So either it's the probably misbegotten belief that, well, if you get them when they're young, then they'll be loyal customers totally. for the rest of their lives. Yes. And I have a I have a story to tell about finding out that my mother was not brand loyal to a particular laundry detergent. It was whatever they had at Costco. Right. <laughs> so they will find out that that does not work eventually. But but in the meantime, you know, clients and brands have ideas about youth culture as a thing, and they have ideas about the value of young customers. And so they spend a fair amount of time obsessing about them and, you know, working in these kind of consulting or agency roles, we're often kind of, you know, looking to see what we can find about these audience demographics and what we're being given is whatever the latest public narrative is. And if you've been doing this long enough, you start to go, hang on, this is just <laughs> this narrative took yeah. a turn. <laughs> or, and now if I, if I look up anything and I start with desk research, I'm like, this is just content marketing. Like this is all just claptrap clickbaity yeah exactly we also have talked about buzzfeed quizzes of you know you're a millennial if you know you know these things are recognizable to you the veil has been lifted and the remix culture is what it is and so stuff that used to all be kind of behind the scenes for marketers <laughs> to think and care about and like create mood boards and persona <laughs> slides about about audience types are now like buzzfeed you know questionnaires yeah. and stuff that people 10 years ago were spending a lot of time at work taking these buzzfeed quizzes to be validated that they were in fact millennials or not <laughs> and it feels like the narrative is like turned on itself where now it you know, it is the snake eating its own tail. It's like, we're telling millennials what they're supposed to be like. We're doing this again with Gen Z. We did it with Gen X. You are like this. And we have these cultural expectations of you now because of that. And you should just live up or down to whatever those expectations are. Yes. How much do you buy? <laughs> How what people are telling you you're and like. are you allowed to say no? Exactly. If you say no, if you sort of deviate from the expectation, like, does anybody even see it? Yeah. Like, because they know what to expect and that's all they're ready to believe in. Yeah. So we went into this season with a curiosity about millennials. I, we didn't know it was going to be a season, but it looks like if you stay with us, we are going to <laughs> look at the current headlines about millennials and have some fun. We are going to look at research that was presented early on in various places and get to know millennials from the time they were graduating high school and how that compared nationally and see maybe some of those conclusions were a little a little off. Uh, we're going to look at that source text. We're going to examine the research done as part of that source text and figure out the some of the uh, questions we have about the methodology there. And we're going to look at even the fundamentals of how do you do research like this at scale? Um, and then look at the way culture has changed over 15, 20 years and spend some time looking at millennials as a part of culture and, and what the reflection is 
um, as a part of this season, which I'm hoping is season one of a few seasons at least. We'll see if Farah can tolerate <laughs> me for a, a second season as we're halfway through this this one at this point in time. I have a I have a good feeling about it. I think, <laughs> I think um, you're highly tolerable, Adam. Thank um, you. <laughs> appreciate that. Uh, yeah, yeah, because I think like this is just one of many kind of groups that get uh, defined for the purposes of thinking about audiences and marketing and politics and just the way we talk about culture and um and they all have their problems um it's just i think this one is truly probably the largest single cohort of a group of people that has been given a single name and a single narrative <laughs> the narrative changes every five years or so but um but it's it's a good place to start and there there are other groups too that i think we're curious about that if we don't just get exhausted we'll we'll tackle those <laughs> in subsequent efforts but for now like there's so much to say about millennials it's almost impossible to think about how to keep it to 10 or so episodes but i think we've done it we'll see on the next episode of in the demo Farah and Adam look at the current headlines to see how millennials are reflected in news and media while examining some of the dominant perceptions of the millennial generation today. I'm your robot host, Eliza. Please be kind. In the Demo is produced by Farah Bostic and Adam Piano, with support from the Difference Engine. Music by Omega Man, under the Creative Commons license.